Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com. And we are the children of the 80s. Back to another episode of Lunchtime Movie Review, the podcast where we look back at some of our childhood favorites to see whether they stand the test of time. I'm Patrick, and with me this week are I'm Chris. G'day, I'm Shane. And this week we're reviewing 1981's Looker with Albert Finney, uh, James Colburn, and Susan Day. Yes, that Susan Day. But <laughs> before we get started with our review of this film, first a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Ray-Ban sunglasses. With all the harmful rays floating in the air these days, it's easy to lose time worrying about them, but Ray-Ban sunglasses are here for you with full protection. No smoke screens needed here. We have specialized lenses that absorb 85% of visible light and block out any harmful rays, natural or man-made. The frames are made from sturdy polymer that was originally developed for military use, but our elegant designs will keep the ladies looking at you. So quit wasting time wondering where the day went. Stop by one of our stores and put on our sunglasses on your face. You won't regret it. Otherwise, you won't remember doing it. So, <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. 1981's Looker. Chris, you're going to have to give a summary for these people because most of these people have probably never even heard of this film. In a world where Michael Crichton rap, rap, writes crappy movies. Oh, sorry. It's a rock. <laughs> All right, Looker, 1981. Beverly Hills plastic surgeon Larry Roberts is unwittingly pitted against an evil corporation when a group of flawless women come to him for cosmetic surgery that's so pointless the human eye cannot recognize the changes. Roberts agrees to do the surgery because he's better than the other surgeons, and he doesn't want these women's perfect bodies to be marred by some amateur doctor. In a short time, though, these women start dying under odd circumstances, and Lieutenant Masters comes knocking on Robert's door one day after he finds some planted evidence at the scene of one of the murders implicating the good old Doc. Now, Roberts takes an interest in who's killing these women as he has become the prime suspect in their murders, and he doesn't really want to be a bottom for the rest of his life. Well, this is the gay 80s, so maybe he wouldn't mind that so much. Robert starts looking for clues with the sleuthing skills of Scooby-Doo and Shaggy after they've consumed a few snacks too many. And snacks is in air quotes. He eventually discovers that all the women come from the same ad research firm, Digital Matrix, run by the evil and vile John Reston. Using the latest in computer technology, Digital Matrix develops a sexy algorithm that rates women based on their looks and then finds ways to get consumers to focus on the model's looks to maximize their television commercials' effectiveness and profitability. To do this, Digital Matrix convinces these women to get cosmetic surgery to become mathematically perfect by offering them a contract that pays them handsomely for the rest of their lives. Then, 
The modified women are digitally leered at and scanned to create the perfect 3D computer model. (laughs) That 3D model is then used in all sorts of commercials, rendering the original live model obsolete. Since these models are chosen for their beauty and not their brains, they don't realize that their lives will then be cut short once Digital Matrix no longer has any use for them. The company simply discards the outdated models as casually as tossing out-of-date memos into the shredder, saving them buku bucks in residuals. Along the way, Roberts develops a raging hard-on for Cindy, a patient of his, and the last Digital Matrix model to be scanned. As Roberts tries to keep Cindy alive, he discovers that besides having these perfect computer models to entice consumers, Digital Matrix also has some technology that hypnotizes the sheeple into wanting any product that is advertised on television. Does that sound a heck of a lot more effective and easier than the computer models they have been killing people for? Yes, it is. So why write about all this plastic surgery crap, Michael Crichton? What are you going to do next? Make a film about a theme park with dinosaurs that don't have an emergency evacuation plan in case something goes wrong with creatures? Nobody would buy into that. (laughs) In the end, Lieutenant Masters randomly shows up at Digital Matrix HQ and kills John Reston without speaking a word. He saves Roberts, but doesn't keep him for questioning. And Roberts and Cindy simply walk away, safe and sound. Oh, did I mention that there is a light, ocular-oriented, kinetic, emotive, responsive gun, or looker for short? That gives you the illusion of invisibility by instantly hypnotizing its victims into losing short periods of time. There is one of those in the film. Very effective unless you have sunglasses or smoke or a poor plot line. Never mind. Forget I mentioned it. The end. <laughs> All right. Looker released on October 30th of 1981, the same day as Halloween 2. So apparently they didn't want to rush Halloween 2 out too early before October 31st. Uh, the same month as Paternity with Burt Reynolds, uh, Rich and Famous with Candace Bergen, All the Marbles, the wrestling film with Peter Falk, The Watcher in the Woods. And, Peter Falk was a wrestler? Uh, he was a manager. <laughs> The Watcher in the Woods, and Silence of the North. It grossed a whopping $3.2 million uh, at the box office, the 85th highest grossing film of 1981, just behind The Watcher in the Woods all night long and The Pursuit (laughs) of D.B. Cooper, and right in front of such big films as Zoot Suit, The Fan, with uh, Morgan Fairchild. Yeah, that's the ticket. And The Last Metro. And that is the stats on Looker. Not impressive stats at all. But we were all excited. When Chris suggested this film, we were all excited about doing it. And I believe Shane said he actually owned a copy of this film. I did. Uh, I do own a copy. And I vaguely remember it being the second feature after sudden impact at my driving when I was a <laughs> child. <laughs> wow. Now, Chris and I, we often refer to as the HBO loop, the HBO channel here in America when we were kids with just rerun films over and over again. And that's where I saw this film. And that's where you saw it too, right, Chris? Yeah, that's correct. Over and over and over. Now, how many times since uh, early 1980s have you seen this film outside of HBO? Grand total of zero times. Okay, you and I are in the same boat. <laughs> in fact, I, I wasn't even sure that we were able to be able to track down this film, but we were able to track down this film and we were able to watch it. And I'm glad we did because I don't know. I remember the gun where people would like lose time 
And I remember a lot of nudity. That's what I remember about this film. That's all I remember. And it was great because it was PG, so you could uh, see it during the day on the HBO when your parents might not be home. Yeah, that was it. My parents would be at work, and I would be home, and I'd just be watching HBO, and I'd watch this film. Because it'd come on in the middle of the day, right after school. So, parents... It's good to monitor what your kids are watching Uh, because I was watching this and Beastmaster, which also had a lot of nudity in it. But, uh, well, I guess we could start with the plot or lack of or plot with a lot of holes. Uh, What bothered you about the plot? And I'll start with Chris, since this was his pick about the plot in this particular film. I'm not even sure where I would begin on that. Um, (laughs) The the main theme, of course, is that these women are uh, are flawless to begin with, and in order to maximize our commercial profits, they're getting surgery, which I think is a very valid plot line even to this day. I think that holds up very well. Um, the execution in this film was poorly done, but I think that's what actually interests me the most about this film is how how television and commercials are influencing you both um, oh, uh, by sub, sub uh, I can't even speak for this one, how, how uh, commercials are subliminally influencing you. And I think that is something that they still try and do to this day. I, I remember back in the day that to get your attention to see the TV, they would have the volume turn up um, really loud. So you would look at the TV and I believe that's now been outlawed in the United States. But there's always all these little tricks that you don't think of. And and so I figured that was the main plot line of this film by having these women cosmetically altered. But in the end, it didn't matter to the to the what the company wanted to get done. Shane, plot holes or, oh. or well, you going into Chris's t- talk about the manipulation of commercials? Well, first of all, what Chris said about the commercials over here, it's, it hasn't been outlawed because whenever there's ads on television during shows or whatever, they, they blast They're really loud. <laughs> so that, to get your attention. Uh, now, what I remember, like, I don't remember much about this at all. I probably was that young. I fell asleep in the back of the car while the parents watched it. But when watching it again, in under three minutes, like in the first three minutes, we get a perfume commercial and then the perfume's called Ravish. Then it goes to the model talking to this jittery doctor about changing her looks, even though they're perfect. And then it goes to it covers the snapshots of her breasts from all angles. And this is in the first three minutes. I thought, what am, what am I watching here? But those that from then on, I couldn't work out if it was unintentional comedy and the plot. It was all over the place, and if it's got something to do with taking notice of commercials and ads, I'm not sure it worked. <laughs> well, to talk about plot holes. I, Chris, you mentioned in your summary that the they, they start killing the models that they're they're digitally scanning for these commercials, and you made it a reference of that they're that they're getting rid of them because they're essentially shredding old documents now. Did you come out of that? Is that your summary of the film or is that based off the notes that I put out there that there's a an, an extra scene that was shown in the TV airing, uh, TV viewings that 
where uh, the James Coburn character actually explains that's why they're killing the models because it's not in the theatrical version. It's not in the, the DVD version of this film that it doesn't exist there, it, which is kind, is kind of a major hole to me is like, why are they even killing the models? I don't even understand why they're doing it because the models aren't threatening the corporation in any way. Well, when I saw the film, I didn't understand that. I just thought when I first saw it that, you know, these women were obsolete. They didn't want witnesses and, to their project. And so they decided to kill them. But it wasn't very clear to me. Um, I wrote this summary after you did say that. And I actually had read online a little bit the, the same thing about that. So I incorporated that in just based on uh, what I had read online. But I didn't get that from viewing the film uh, when I saw it last week. No, and I just don't understand. That's a huge that's a huge thing. That's what that's the primary force of why Albert Finney even gets involved is these models are being killed. And you never find out if you watch the theatrical version of this film, you're never told why they're, they're being killed. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to make any sense why they do so let alone why Albert Finney from the get go, they're trying to frame Albert Finney. Like he's, he's there, you know, the, the, the antithesis of them. And he's just the plastic surgeon who's actually helping them out by doing these surgeries on these models. And they're, they're laying the groundwork to frame him for the murders before he even knows the corporation even exists. I mean, it's just things like it's it almost like this film was told out of order that there was some, there was some scenes that needed to be there that, that ultimately didn't get shown. Yeah. Yeah. That, those scenes should have been included, but do you think that James Coburn as the head of the research facility was kind of like a Frankenstein type character? I mean, to a certain, I mean, he's making digital Frankensteins, but yeah, you know, he just seems to be in this sinister head of a corporation who actually doesn't mind getting his hands dirty, especially at the end of the film when he's trying to shoot and kill Albert Finney. What another thing I didn't understand was did did James Colbert as John Reston, did he have the police uh, under his control? Was he paying them off? No, I did not get that. Okay. I think the police were looking at Albert Finney as a legitimate suspect. And then at the end, we're on his side, you know, once once okay. they figured out what was going on. That, that cop just basically walked in, shot John Reston, walked out. He didn't really he'd never had any interaction with uh, with the doctor inside the headquarters no he didn't but he didn't really have any interaction with anybody in the film i mean no. th th there's there's basically four characters there's god i got i'm blanking on his name the the former nfl football player who's the kind of the hitman for the uh, mustache man yeah mustache man for lack of a better term no that's all he's named in the film oh is that what he's called yeah, mustache man yeah. okay yeah. Right. i looked on imdb he's mustache man okay mustache man james coburn albert finney and susan day you know and then there's a couple of supporting characters here and there but those are the four main characters that you're that's 90 percent of the cast the the dialogue in the film there although mustache man i don't think he actually even says anything at any point in time he's just he's just present and sinister but what you know what what was going on why were they going after albert finney from the before he's even even aware that there's an evil corporation and then his jump to I've got to protect this one girl, you know, that uh, the Susan Day character who, by the way, Susan Day is a very, very beautiful woman. But in comparison to the Playboy models that they had <laughs> representing the other three models that were killed, she she seems distinctly different. You know, it's like, OK, you have acting ability. You will be our primary female lead. Uh, you three will die. <laughs> so I, I couldn't take my eyes off Susan Day for most of it. Uh, she really was 
gorgeous in her own way opposite and unique to those other models like you say patrick yeah but i mean she's not playboy model gorgeous i mean not saying that that's a standard she was beautiful in her own right and surprisingly that she did the nude scene so which that kind of caught me off guard i was like whoa that's susan day that's one of the partridge family that's that's a little weird um <laughs> she i remember seeing shows where she was a kid uh that just doesn't seem it doesn't seem right <laughs> those child actors always want to shed their uh their wholesome image like near the start where that cop first goes to visit Albert Finney, you sort of know that he's the suspect right from the start. And that's what the, you know, Michael Crichton obviously wants you to think. And you're right. I don't think James Coburn had the police under his wing at all. Yeah, but they're I mean, somebody's leading the police to to Albert Finney. I mean, yeah, the victims at that point in time, there's only two victims and they both had surgery with him and they're almost looking at him as a suspect from the get go. And why he, why would they think, I mean, granted they're leaving his, like his, uh, the button of his jacket at the the crime scene and things like that. But why, why would they think that he would want heavy motive to kill them. And it just so much is unexplained. And it, and, and the thing is, it's a 90 minute movie. They could have spent 10 or 15 more minutes and made this a much, much better film because I don't think the concept is bad. I just think the execution was lacking. No, this is a yeah. very good concept. I, I think it, it's a very sound concept that resent, uh, that resonates to this day. Do you really? In what way? Well, I think that every advertiser out there is always trying to to get people to buy their product and not their competitors. And and I think that they would resort to any sort of subliminal advertising. And uh, I think that this speaks to it. I think you could remake this movie and it would it, it would be uh, just as impactful, if not more. I think there's a lot of elements that advertisers would love to use today that were in this film. Okay. Yeah, no, you're right about the advertising. They'll try anything. Yeah, you know, if they could get a computer-generated model that is that represents every ethnicity in one sort of in computer model that they don't have to pay somebody for, they can use them all the time in every situation, make modifications by demographic maybe, I think they would do it. And they, they still might. I mean, computers are getting very good now. Well, and, and they they go as far as explaining that that why they they need the digital image of the model, and I thought it was a really interesting explanation of they saying, "Hey, when when we showed this model as was untouched up with plastic surgery, you know, the the approval rate of audiences was like ninety three and ninety three percent. When you went and did the surgery, that jumped up to you know whatever I'm making up the numbers, but ninety eight or ninety nine percent until she moved, until she was moving around, and then it drops back down to the ninety three percent again. Now that's why we make the digital enhancement because we can perfect her moves perfectly, so it keeps that approval rate, that attention rate, that high. And I was like, wow, that that's really interesting. And and, and take that in line with like Michael Crichton, the kind of the quote I threw down in the notes that you know he says that you know all advertising is essentially manipulative and. It, that that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to manipulate you into buying something or showing an interest in something. And it's not necessarily evil, but he, the point I think he's trying to make with the film and he kind of implies is that what, what would possibly happen to someone instead of the salesman, someone with scientific knowledge began actually tampering with commercials to increase that manipulation and increase that approval rate is that then it starts to, I mean, 
without getting in the subliminal, which was also a part of this as well, and apparently okay in Australia, um, is, yes. is, is, you know, then you really start to get into dangerous territory and the, 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 the danger of science and technology in commercials is, is, is threatening is because now you're really, really affecting the way people think in, in a, a, a much more dangerous way. I, I thought that concept, and I th- and the thing is, is I think you could make this today with possibly better special effects because this is, although it's science fiction, it's not. It, 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 there's nothing in it that you go, oh, can you believe that they they didn't believe we'd have guns that would cause you to be hypnotized for hours on end. I mean, that's still science. You could still do that today. It's still science fiction. You know, it's still believable. Yeah, no, I agree there. And uh, there's an introduction on my DVD from Michael Crichton who says basically that same thing. He said even back then he was writing it and people were laughing at him. So, no, this this won't happen, but it's it could and still could. And it'd make a good remake, you're right, if the right people were in it. And it wasn't an un- unintentional comedy, which I think this has turned out to be. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think it was not cast well. It was not acted well, and it, it obviously did not have the full backing of Warner Brothers because if, if these additional scenes were there and Michael Crichton wasn't allowed to keep them in, then you know somebody just wanted to not. This film wasn't released; it escaped, and it, it they put it out at a slow time of year, and it didn't do very well. And it was okay. Let's put it out and just let let's forget about it and move on and. And unfortunately, uh, it affected the small childhood memories of Chris and I, and apparently you too, Shane, <laughs> to the point where we yeah, go, a little bit. hey, we got to talk about that one. The same way that someday we're going to do Under the Rainbow with Chevy Chase and Carrie Fisher is we're going to talk about that one because <laughs> it, it it impacted our little childhood minds. And, and as I said, the one thing I remember was the hypnotizing gun and the nudity. And that was that's all I remember. But I didn't even remember the theme of advertising and manipulation and subliminal messages and crap like that. There's, I, I didn't even remember James Coburn was in this. I remember Albert Finney. That was all I remember. And Albert Finney was pretty gruff in this. He didn't seem like a doctor. He didn't seem like a detective. He didn't seem like a guy who would get Susan Day. <laughs> what has Albert Finney not been gruff? <laughs> uh, he just, yeah. There's one point where he's uh, there's a car chase and he's he's screaming around the corner and these nuns walk in front of him and he stops. So I think that's funny and he's waving to them and they are all yelling at him and then that in the car when he wakes up in the fountain as well and he's just there after the you know the time stood still for him because he doesn't know how he got there. I, I think all that was Albert Finney just on autopilot really with his acting. Yeah, I mean. Albert Finney was uh, is is a very talented actor, but it somewhat became lost in the eighties of, of after the films he did in the sixties and seventies. That he you know, and, and I think doing films like this, although he, he followed this pretty closely with The Dresser, which he was uh, I believe he was nominated for Best Actor for pretty soon after it. But you know, he 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 faded pretty quickly, and I think it was choices of projects like this, and and Susan Day was trying to break out of her you know, television star and James Coburn is, I don't know, James Coburn playing the bad guy just became kind of cliche by the nineties. Mm-hmm. And I like James Coburn. 
Yeah, no, he's another actor that does have a presence and that voice. He wasn't in it enough, though, I don't think, James Coburn. Uh, uh, no, I so. agree. He should have been in it more, should have been less of Mustache Man, and there should have been more plot. There need to be more exposition, too. They just need to explain what was going on instead of trying to just haphazardly figure it out. I mean, this. Uh, well, for example, he got the he figured out that those sunglasses will keep you from getting zapped. So why in the car chase did he not have those sunglasses with them? What happened to the sunglasses? Because he escaped from there. Exactly. The sunglasses. I was wondering I'm, that. I'm like, I'm like, use the sunglasses, dude. <laughs> yeah. And then also smoke. Smoke blocks them, which I actually thought was interesting this time because I remember back when Clinton was sending those bombs in um, – the laser guided bombs in what was that Croatia or do you guys remember where he was sending them in the nineties? Oh, I don't in the nineties. Well, I watched anyway, movies. They not were the confusing news. the laser guided systems by using smoke. Exactly how um, this laser gun was was um, confused and rendered ineffective in this film. So I thought that was very interesting. That yes, there is some of this technology from this film it, practical in modern life. Well, this is written and directed by Michael Crichton, who does a lot of research for his novels and even his screenplays for films. So there's there's usually an, a, a kernel of of truth in his science fiction that and so I'm not surprised that he, you know that he added that little element to say hey this can affect things and it really does affect laser guided things so that's that that's interesting that you pointed that out but I'm not surprised by it I mean he 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 makes his science fiction somewhat believable uh indeed he does uh Westworld is a good um you know, example of that. And I think Michael Crichton's good and he's not the downfall of this movie. I, I just think there's just certain scenes that should have been added or a bit more fluency to the story because overall it's watchable and there's some interesting things happening in it, but there's just, there's just some scenes or editing problems, I think. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a lot of editing problems and, and I, I'll lay the blame on that for probably the studio who just said, yeah, we need it 90 minutes. We need it out, you know, just get it, get it done and get it out. And that's, that's why, uh, you know, two, uh, I know the television version had two additional scenes, which was one was that explanation of why the models were being killed. And then some other scene, I believe towards the end of it, but, that was that was edited so it could show on television, and so they actually added it to expand to fill the time for a two hour two hour block on television, including the loud ads. Yeah, the the <laughs> loud ads. You know that everyone isn't that that Susan Day character in that commercial there. That's 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 weird. Um, I need to go buy some pledge. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a scene where Susan Day's on the beach, and that she has to keep recreating that roll across the sand. And there's a director running around saying, one more time, do it again, do it again. Oh, Bernie's. Remember, he, did you notice who that was? Weekend at Bernie's. Bernie from Weekend at Bernie's. Yeah, that was him. <laughs> yep, I recognized him. So I, he was he was on a lot of uh, movies throughout the 80s. So when he finally went, became, well, I don't want to say he made it broke, made it big with, big with Weekend at Bernie's. Yeah, we want <laughs> you to play a dead guy and not move. <laughs> so. Must have been really excited. I don't even get to talk. Oh, okay, all right. Well, he got a sequel out of that, which that's, is pretty good. For that's true, and he, I'm sure he negotiated. Said, "Hey, can there be some sort of voodoo element that causes me to be able to move a little bit in this one?" Yeah. <laughs> so two two uh, would be actors don't have to carry me around. <laughs> yeah, that was quite bizarre. That sequel. 
I, I don't know how they got away with with making the first one, and then they to to squeeze it out a little bit more is incredible. The first one was a little entertaining. It was. It was a, I don't remember the first one being too bad. Yeah, the second one was no, horrible. It's good. The second ridiculous one was, concept, but yeah. All right. Anything else on Looker? You know, uh, one of the things that uh, I didn't find interesting was this was the first film that had a 3D computer model in it. Before um, before Tron. It, it was before Tron about by about a year, and um, it beat Willow with their their morphing technique by – when was when was Willow? 85, 86? I think it was 86. Uh, about 86, yeah. I think. Yeah, so they beat that by about five years. So that's one thing that should be noted in this film. Yeah, I mean, technology. Once again, special effects technology it, it predates a lot of much better films. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying that about Tron or Willow, but it's it's that <laughs> they are much better films than this one. <laughs> Except those films have no nudity. Let's remember that no nudity in Tron. No, that, and they were both '80s hot and probably today hot. I would say true. Yeah, definitely today's today hot. And you're saying that it was PG over there. See, I remember it's rated M here. So that's an M is sort of an in between a PG and an R rating. Yeah, this is so. this is uh, four years before PG thirteen debuts in the US. So you in that in, prior to nineteen eighty five, you could get away with a lot more nudity in films because it, 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 as long as it wasn't done in a sexual context, you could and it was just like just showing some nudity like a la clash of the titans uh beastmaster uh just off the top of my head that i, I can think of that, that where conan conan's an r-rated film <laughs> oh, that's true. that was r-rated i mean for violence uh, people being beheaded and things like that but uh so that so they got a lot of away with a lot of that stuff prior to the in, invention of PG13 and then that kind of shifted to uh, 16 candles right. is another one that has nudity in it that kind of catches you off guard because that's a, that's that actually has a, the f word in it too but that you Yeah know, right at the start. Yeah right at the beginning. So but yeah that I mean this was on the middle of the day it would always catch me off guard with oh it's that movie about the that has the nudity I'll, I'll wait and watch that scene and then i'll be done that's that's what i remember for <laughs> i know i know matt and jason will run out and rent this one now because they go oh nudity we're gonna go see it yeah exactly and the collective group of women they've chosen to be in this film are faultless like their characters are supposed to be uh, i think they've done a really good casting uh, job there and I just want to point out the music I really like the soundtrack uh, by Barry Devorzen he was the composer who also composed the Warriors so there was that digital type of um, sonic sounds that he had on the soundtrack I thought was pretty good too yeah and you know and even to this day I remember the theme uh, the Looker theme song that s- sticks in my head that I, I you hear it at the beginning you hear it at the end but it, it's a very memorable song yeah that's right uh, it was wasn't it I remember I forgot about that until you just said that was a really great song actually over the end credits yep I'm sure we'll have it at the end credits on this podcast <laughs> so, <laughs> I liked his house I liked where Albert Finney lived I guess because I like the ocean but he lived the the, the house setting where he lived was a really nice I thought too. Yeah, but ultimately, at the end of the day, Shane doesn't cause me to like the film any better because he had a cool house by the beach. <laughs> he's, he's a plastic surgeon in LA. I expect him to have a house by the beach. Got it. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, let's wrap it up. Uh, Looker, does it stand the test of time? Uh, Shane? Uh, I, I have to sit on the fence for this one. I still think it was enjoyable. I don't. I recall seeing it as a young teenager, but I remember the glasses and the hip, hypnotizing gun only and moustache man. I forgot he didn't say a word, and I didn't know he was a football player. But uh, I, I enjoyed it again, watching it again. And as I said, I think the casting was pretty good. I just think it had major editing and loopholes in the plot. But I overlooked that and I thought it was entertaining. So it just stands the test of time. Chris? You know, the, the plot holes are glaring and it's very distracting. But I thought that visually I thought it held up well. I mean, sure, it's 80s hair and um, 80s music, but like you guys, I did like the music of this one. Um, I'm going to say that it barely stands a test of time because I really like the overall concept of it. And for the most part, I like Albert Finney and, and Susan Day in this. So I'll say by the nick of its teeth, it stands a test of time. All right, because I always got to be difficult. I, I do not think it stands the test of time, and I'm going to disagree <laughs> with both of you. Is I agree with Chris. I like the concept. I like the idea, and I think this could be done better today than it was in 1981. But I feel like I'm missing a th- like a quarter of this film after watching it. I just like things just seem to jump and not, it feels like someone shot me with a hypnotizing gun and I missed 15 minutes of the film for some reason. Cause I suddenly don't understand <laughs> where did we, how did we get here and what had gone on to, to lead us to this point? It just, there's just such glaring holes that go unexplained in this film that it, it's, it's very jarring to watch. Concept is good. The ex, uh, as I said, the execution is just bad. So because of that, I wouldn't recommend anybody watch at this point in time. Hopefully someday they'll, they'll remake it and, and unless you really want to see Susan Day naked, that's this. There's not much else to see in this film. So that's I, not a bad reason to see. No, it. it's not a bad reason to see it. And she's not the only one who gets naked in it. But uh, it's but it does not stand the test of time. And I wouldn't recommend anybody to watch it. Would you say that this is one of the your top ten mo- uh, worst edited movies? Oh, um. I, but I don't know if the problem was editing or if it was script, you know, mm-hmm. that it's not like I've seen a director's cut of this to go, yeah. oh, all those other things They're are, not clear. Are, are all suddenly clear. I mean, I know that there's two other scenes that I've never seen because I read about them that were on the television broadcast, but uh, I don't I don't know if it's an editing issue or if it was just a, a, a bad what was actually shot for the this from the script that just didn't get in there. There, there are bad, edit, bad edited films that are just too jarring that uh, I think are a completely different issue um, to me. This is just, there's just plot holes missing. Yeah. I, I kind of uh, disagree. I think that even though the writing does have its uh, dodgy moments, I, I would have thought that he, Michael Crichton would have submitted the movie to Warner brothers or, you know, the people who want, uh, were going to release it. And they, they probably did a lot of the editing themselves and he didn't have control at the time of it. So I'm not sure that would have helped. No, I'm sure he gave up a lot of control just to be able to have the ability to direct this film. Uh, although yeah. he had directed films before this, but he wrote and directed this film. So to get that kind of, at least that creative control of, Hey, I'm filming my script. I'm sure he had to negotiate 
negotiate something on the back end uh, as far as the editing process of, hey, it needs to be this long and it needs to be out by this date. And and that, that's the way it, that, that's the way it, why it came out the way it did. But I, you know, there there maybe there's another hour of footage to this film that just, you know, Crichton wasn't able to put in there and and. Maybe someday we'll see it. I don't imagine we will, but uh, someday that, you know, I, I'd be I'd, I'd be very interested in reading about it, at least to say what else was out there that we shot. But it's not that kind of film that anybody's going to sit there and talk about. Hey, remember Looker? Let's write a novel or do a documentary about the making of Looker that anybody's going to care about. <laughs> and, and there was a bit of a creative uh, ideas in there with some of the ads that came on in the background, because quite often he'd be in his house and there'd be just a TV on with all these crazy ads for constipation and things on in the background. Yeah, I mean, that's... That was imaginative. And you see it, people use that later on in other films, such as Total Recall or Paul Verhoeven and Total Recall or RoboCop, um, even Starship Troopers, using that kind of, using the commercials partially to tell the story or show the the effect of, uh, you know, the the science fiction aspect of how things have changed via the commercials. Yeah, that's it. All right, that does it for this week's review of 1981's Looker. Thanks again for joining us and and listening to our little podcast. If you've (laughs) had a good time, the fun doesn't have to stop here. You can follow us on Facebook at Lunchtime Movie Review or on Twitter at Lunchtime Movie on either Facebook or Twitter. You can keep up on our written film reviews, news on upcoming films and Blu-ray releases, and information on upcoming podcasts on the MHM Podcast Network, including Movie House Memories, Lunchtime Movie Review, Mail Bonding, and the number two review additionally you can follow us on all of our little side projects chris hosts the number two review podcast which can be heard here on mhm and you can follow him on twitter at haley creative and shane writes regularly for sydneyunleashed.com and is a contributor to cult and you can follow him on twitter at movie underscore analyst where you can keep up on his film reviews and celebrity interviews Finally, if you've enjoyed yourselves and you've downloaded us off either iTunes or Stitcher, make sure to rate our podcast on either one of those two platforms. And if you have a chance, write a short review of the podcast. Of course, we always like the reviews that are positive, but we appreciate any feedback that we get from any listeners of the show. Well, that does it for this episode of Lunchtime Movie Review. Until next time, I'm Patrick. I'm Chris. I'm Shane. And we got to get out of here right now. (laughs) We got to get out of here right now. And you guys are invited. is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for Lunchtime Movie Review Fireworks is provided courtesy of Alexander Nakaranda at serpentsoundstudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of MHM Podcast Network, Lunchtime Movie Review and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment LLC unless otherwise noted.